Good morning. It's good to have a Bible between you all and myself and the Holy Spirit who has written it, resident within each redeemed heart this morning. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have graciously provided one lifeboat for those at sea perishing. And Lord, some of us bowed in your presence at this time have been in the boat a long time, and we've forgotten the terrors of the seas. Remind us. And Father, some here this morning have never bothered to get into the boat. They have procrastinated getting out of the boat by overestimating their ability to swim in the dangerous seas. We would ask that the Spirit of God would be our teacher as we consider the raging and the treacherous sea which your word calls hell. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. What we are not yet, make us. For your Son's sake, we pray. Amen. It may surprise you that I would preach this morning on hell. I believe the Lord has led me to do so for a number of reasons. One, while on earth, Jesus taught a lot about hell. He certainly believed it to be real, and he obviously didn't want any people to go there. Number two, facing hell motivates evangelism. Number three, when we, the church, get dulled about the horrors of hell through the jokes that are told, we're in trouble. Number four, considering hell increases our worship for our Savior and for the salvation he gives us. Number five, considering hell helps us appreciate heaven more. Six, Hell is a much-neglected topic. Some so-called evangelicals are even denying hell's existence. Have you ever heard a sermon on hell? And if you have, when was the last time? Number seven, hell argues for the holiness and the wrath and the righteous judgment of God These are all good reasons to preach what the Bible has to say about hell this morning. Now, if you were Satan, and if you were well aware as Satan that your end would be perpetual torture and confinement in a lake of fire, and if it was your desire to bring as many human beings with you to that place of confinement as you could, if you were Satan, knowing that misery loves company, what would you do? Well, you would do, if you were Satan, what you do best. You would lie. Many lies Satan has over hell. Lie number one, there is no such thing as hell. No accountability, freely sin. There is no piper to be paid. Jehovah's Witness literature states, and I quote, who is responsible for the God-defaming doctrine of hell of torment? The promulgator is Satan. His purpose in introducing it 
has been to frighten the people away from studying the Bible and to make them hate God, end of quote. That, my friends, makes total no sense. That's nonsense. But that's a lie today. There is no hell. Lie number two, if there is a hell, it's only for people that are worse people than you. Lie number three, hell is a party with all of your friends. Lie number four, heaven is boring. Hell will be full of fun vices that you just love down here on earth. These are satanic lies about hell. Lie number five, hell is really only here on earth when you suffer. And so the lie is that everyone gets to heaven since they all have a hard time in life on earth. The sixth lie, hell hurts, but just for a little while. Hell's fires make you no longer exist. Hell annihilates you. It's bad, but only for a short time. That's a lie. Lie number seven, it's bad to preach about hell, preachers. It's harsh. People don't want to hear it. You'll be discounted as being just a fire and brimstone, Bible-thumping preacher. Lie number eight. A loving God would not send anyone to hell. Everyone's okay. And lie number nine. There's no point in ever thinking about hell. C.S. Lewis, in his classic, The Screwtape Letters, a dialogue between a senior demon named Screwtape and a novice demon named Wormwood, a dialogue that the senior demon is trying to teach the junior demon how to undermine Christian faith and how to promote sin, had this interchange. Uncle Screwtape to Wormwood, quote, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Signed, your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. Church family, may I remind us that this is the thing. Jesus Christ is the ultimate signpost, the supreme fork in the road, the eternity-determining signpost for every person. This is who Jesus Christ is. C.S. Lewis recognized that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every single inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan, end of quote. And so we should not miss these important things. Jesus believed in a literal hell. And Jesus warned people not to go there. Go with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We'll be moving around God's word quite a bit in this message, but our basic go-to text is Luke 16, 19 through 31. And as you're turning there, let me say that I will not be reading every text that is projected in the course of this sermon for references. I would suggest you write those references down if you're taking notes to look them up on your own, or perhaps go to Calvary Bible. Uh, .org.bs, go to media and watch this sermon later to take notes off those passages if you are so inclined. So we've gone to Luke chapter 16 to begin reading at verse 19. Jesus in this particular story 
tells, about, tells us about hell. He teaches his original listeners about hell, and by extension, through Scripture, he teaches all of us these centuries later truth about hell. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Hear the word of God. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. What should we learn from this story which Jesus told? Number one, we should learn that everyone lives after dying, and it's forever. Verses 22 and 23. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. Yes, everyone lives after dying and it's forever. The second thing to learn, hell is a place of conscious and unending torture. Verses 23 and 24 again, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame, skipping down to verse 25. And Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. 28, second part of the verse. Lest they also come to this place of torment. Hell is a place of conscience, unending torture. The third thing we should learn from Jesus' story, hell and heaven have no bridge between them. 
There is a chasm, a canyon fixed between the two places. There is no parole from hell. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may be able to cross over from there to us. The fourth thing we should learn from Jesus' story is that hell has degrees of punishment. Matthew 11, if you care to go with me. Matthew 11, in the general sense, teaches that there are degrees of punishment in those, for those who go to hell. Matthew 11, 21 to 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There are degrees of punishment in hell. To be more specific, there are degrees of punishment in hell with respect to words spoken while on earth and with respect to works done while on earth. The fifth thing to learn from Jesus' story is that hell will not send its victims back to earth to warn the living. No Charlie Charlie. No zombies. No seances. No communication with the damned. The scriptures are God's only warning to the living. Verses 29 to 31 of Jesus' story. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's a way of saying the Old Testament scriptures. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament scriptures, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Hell will not send any of its victims back to earth to warn the living. Number six lesson, hell is the worst nightmare of the worst landfill garbage dump imaginable. Gehenna is one of the New Testament names for hell. It's the Valley of Hinnom near Jerusalem, south valley of the ancient city of Jerusalem, which served as the ancient city's garbage dump inferno. The garbage from the ancient city of Jerusalem was pitched into the Hinnom Valley called Gehenna, and the flame perpetually burned. There was the stink of burning garbage in that valley night and day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. Jesus compared hell to that. A burning garbage dump. In Mark 9, Jesus helps us further. In Mark 9, verses 43 and 44, 
And if your hand causes you to stumble, Jesus teaches, and if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to be enter life crippled than you to having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is called Gehenna in the New Testament. That is the valley of Hinnom, the garbage dump of ancient city of Jerusalem. And the fire never goes out and the devouring maggots never get their fill. Seventh lesson from Jesus in his story. Hell is an equal opportunity sentence. The rich and the uneducated, the poor and the unlikely alike go there if there is no salvation found for them in Christ before they breathe their last breath. Number eight, Jesus' story teaches us that hell is the worst of wastefulness. When I was a young lad, I went with my father to a garbage dump for the first time, and I saw all the precious things that people put on time payment plans that were rusting in the garbage dump. The computer games that were too old to be fun anymore. The refrigerators, the stoves, the televisions. Wastefulness. Hell is the worst of wastefulness. But hell is also the worst of hopelessness. There is no hope in hell. None. Jesus' story teaches us further that hell is the worst of sinfulness. Because sinfulness does not cease in hell. Revelation 22, verse 11, I'll let you look that up on your own time. It's a striking verse. It says the person who sins on earth goes to hell, keeps on sinning in hell. Hell is the worst of sinfulness. Eleventh lesson from Jesus' story, hell is the ultimate and supreme expression of God's holiness, wrath, and hatred of sin and evil. God's holiness and repulsion at sin and evil would be meaningless if there were no hell. Meaningless. There has to be a hell. The twelfth lesson Jesus' story brings to us is that hell has no waiting room. There is no purgatory. There are no indulgences that any church could coerce out of you to pay to them to pray for your loved one out of some waiting room just on the edge of hell. There are no second chances after death. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. There's no purgatory. Hell has no waiting room. You can't pay a clergyman to pray your person out of a holding tank. The 13th lesson Jesus' story brings to us is that it is unbearably hot in hell. Luke 16 Verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. It's not a party. Fourteenth lesson, Jesus' story. Repentance is necessary to be spared from hell. Verse 30, but he said no. Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Even the gentleman in hell knew the repentance was required. 
he had the wrong remedy to how he would get his living family to repent. He wanted a miraculous return from hell to visit his loved ones. And the message was, look at your Bible. Have your loved ones look at their Bible. But repentance, changing one's mind about sin and the Savior, repentance is necessary to be spared from hell. So everyone's not okay. Jesus called the unrepentant wicked a few things that weren't flattering in the New Testament. Jesus called the unrepentant wicked chaff, Matthew 3. He called them weeds, Matthew 13. He called the unrepentant wicked bad fish. That stinks. Matthew 13. Jesus called the unrepentant wicked wedding crashers in Matthew 22. And all of these metaphors and so many more, if I took time to point them out to you, point to the fact that the unrepentant wicked are undesirable to be, habit, to be inhabitants of heaven. They can't just walk up to the gate and say, I have a pulse. I was a nice guy. Let me in. To be unrepentant at the point of your death about faith in Jesus Christ is dire. Everyone's not okay. Dante's Inferno, as you know, is a literary, literary classic describing hell at many different levels. This is a quote. The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in a time of great moral crisis, maintain their neutrality. End of quote. The 15th and the last lesson from Jesus' story, at least for this morning, escape from hell is impossible. There are no prison breaks. Matthew 22 and verse 13. Matthew 22 and verse 13. And the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bound. No prison break. There is no escape from hell. It's impossible. As compelling as all of these things are, body of Christ, there are other facts about hell which the scriptures teach that I need to share with you this morning in love in love for you and your souls, but in love for all of the souls that you have impact with Monday to Saturday. Number one, hell is real and unending pain, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Number two, hell is everlasting solitary confinement. There is no socializing in hell. Satan would have People who want to go their own way believe that it's a party. There's no party. It's, it's solitary confinement. There's no socializing in hell. One of the hallmark features of being in hell is loneliness. Luke 13, if you just go back. Luke 13, 25 through 30. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, and then he will answer and say to you, I do not know 
where you are from, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. There's no party in hell. It's solitary confinement and loneliness. Third, hell is not only dark. It's also fire. How those two go together, our minds don't understand right now, but they do. If you go with me to Jude 12 and 13, and this will not be on the screen, but Jude 12 and 13 tells us that hell is dark, pitch dark. Jude 12 and 13. False teachers are being referenced here. These men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black Darkness has been reserved forever. Hell is black darkness forever, but equally, hell is fire. Matthew 13, 40. Matthew 13, 40. Jesus said, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, jet black, oppressive flames of fire. I don't know how the two go together. But God invented physics, so it will be no trouble for him. Fourth, hell is mostly hell because Jesus is not there. And heaven is mostly heaven because Jesus is there. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Hell is mostly hell because God is not there, and heaven is mostly heaven because God is there. Fifth, hell is a place of no rest. Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. Hell is a place of no rest. And he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and who ever receives the mark of his name. Hell is a, a place of no rest, but hell is also a place of no ending. Revelation 20 and verse 10. Hell is a place of no ending. And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No end. Seventh, hell is a place of memories, guilt, and regret. If we go back to Luke 16 and verse 25, it's striking. You could miss it, but it's striking. In Luke 16, verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you receive the good things. One of the biggest tortures for individuals who will spend eternity in hell is they will remember the chances they had to accept Christ. The people who loved them with Jesus' love and pointed them to Jesus' cross, and they mocked or they delayed. Hell will be a place of memories, of guilt and regret, is really a perpetual state of a nightmare. Again, from the literary classic Dante's Inferno, this description of hell's nightmare memories, quote, there is no greater sorrow than to recall our times of joy in wretchedness. Eighth, hell is the answer to certain prayers of certain unbelievers while they were on earth. Just leave me alone. God, if you're real, show me. Damn it. Damn your soul. Damn you. These are all the prayers that will be answered in hell for the unrepentant. Ninth, hell is irreversible, unending alienation and separation from God and God's goodness. Tenth, hell is long-awaited divine vengeance. Romans 12 and verse 19. Romans 12 and verse 19. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And where God repays, vengeance is in hell. Hell is long-awaited divine vengeance. Eleventh, hell is also long-awaited divine wrath against evil and evildoers. John 3, verse 36 John 3, verse 36. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That is perpetually, everlastingly. Hell is the wrath of God abiding on the rejecter of Christ forever. Twelve, hell is as much inner turmoil as it is surrounding turmoil. Augustine said, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Hell is forever inner turmoil. Hell is forever missing the very purpose of one's life. Hell is forever inner agitation and restlessness. But there's more. 13, it's easy to work one's way to hell. It results from logical choices. Proverbs 16, verse 25. Proverbs 16, verse 25. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Oh, it's easy to work one's own way to hell by charting one's own course in life. It's also easy to work one's way to hell because it results from going with the flow, going with the peers you have in school or where you work or where you live or where you go on vacation. And in Matthew 7, Jesus makes this very clear that it's easy to wind up in hell because so many other people are, are headed that way. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14 Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, preached, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Oh, it's easy to work one's own way to hell, by logical choices of making self-determinations, and it's easy to make our way to hell because we can easily just go with the crowd, to go with the flow on the widest road possible that's got a slight decline to it, as C.S. Lewis said, a soft steps down this path with no signposts, no markers, no warnings. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. 14, hell is the logical end of Romans 6, 23a, which says, for the wages of sin is death. In Ezekiel 18, 20, part A, the person who sins will die. That's all of us. But we can be spared the eternal paycheck of being a sinner of eternal death and hell if we run to Christ. Have you ever done that? I'm not talking about your spouse if they've done it. I'm not talking about your parents if they've done it. Have you ever run to Christ for salvation? The gospel, the good news of the Bible is that God loves sinners and has done something about reaching us. He has come to us when we couldn't come to him ourselves. He has offered us pardon and forgiveness and cleansing 
through a great cost to the Godhead of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But like any gift, the gift of forgiveness in heaven must be received. A gift is no one's until that person receives it. The gift of forgiveness of sin in heaven one day are to be received, God says, in a very narrow manner. Placing full confidence and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Many paths do not lead to heaven. One path leads to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Many paths, my friends, lead to hell. What are we to do with these facts? Well, I tell you, I don't share them with you as some kind of a dump truck of theological facts and just dump them on your lap and my lap and say, well, that was nice. We need to do something about these realities. What are we to do with these facts that the Bible teach about hell? Let me tell you about what what one man did. John Harper was born in Scotland in 1872 to a Christian family. When he was presented with the message of John 3.16, at the age of 13, he believed in Jesus and received everlasting life. When he was 18, he had a powerful vision of the cross of Christ, and at that moment, he committed his life to bringing the message of the cross to others. The very next day, he began to preach in his own village, urging all his hearers to be reconciled to God He made every street corner his pulpit. His desire to win souls to Christ was unmatched, becoming all-consuming purpose. An evangelist friend named W.D. Dunn recalled often seeing Harper lying on his face before God, pleading with him to give me souls or I die. Give me souls or I die sobbing as if his heart would break. At 32, he had a near-drowning experience when he was caught on a leaky ship in the Mediterranean. He said of the experience, the fear of death did not for one minute disturb me. I believed that sudden death would be sudden glory. In 1911, he spent three months preaching at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during a revival and received an enthusiastic response. He was asked to return for three more months of meetings beginning in April of 1912. Originally scheduled to sail on the Lusitania, he sailed on the Titanic after a schedule change. When he informed his church of his intent to return to Chicago, a parishioner begged him not to go, saying, He had been praying and felt strongly that something ominous would happen if he went. He pleaded with Harper, but to no avail. Harper felt that there was a divine purpose for his trip, and Harper went ahead with his plans. The night before the ship sank, Harper was seen leading a man to Christ on the deck. Afterward, he looked to the west, and seeing a glint of red in the sunset, he said, It will be beautiful in the morning. Moments later, the Titanic struck an iceberg and the ice sea poured in. Mayhem ensued as most people struggled to save their own lives. And as they loaded the lifeboats, John Harper shouted, Let the women and children and the unsaved into the lifeboats. 
Then he removed his life preserver and gave it to another man. At 2.20 a.m. on April 15, 1912, the Titanic disappeared beneath the water. Harper and many others were left floundering in the icy waters. One man who was clinging to a piece of wood saw Harper struggling in the water. Harper shouted, are you saved? When the man answered, no, Harper quoted Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The man did not respond, and they lost sight of each other. A few minutes later, the current brought them together again, and Harper asked the same question again, urging the man to believe in Jesus and receive. He received the same answer again. Then Harper slipped beneath the black water, never to resurface. The man did place his faith in Jesus Christ and later was rescued by a lifeboat. He testified that he was John Harper's last convert. After the sinking of the ship, relatives and friends of the passengers gathered outside the White Star office in Liverpool, England. As news came in about the passengers, names were placed on one of two lists known to be saved, known to be lost. The voyage had begun with three classes of passengers, but now it had only been reduced to two. Those known to be saved, those known to be lost. On which list do you find your name? Those known to be saved. Those known to be lost. In a couple of moments, I'm going to give you who want to be sure about being in Christ for salvation an opportunity to come forward, to be prayed with, to be helped into the family of God. Maybe you've been coming to this building for years, but you've never really made personal your faith in Christ. Maybe you're here because your spouse wants you to be, or maybe you're here because your parents demand that you be. Those known to be saved, those known to be lost. Jesus cried over Jerusalem. Jesus wept over Lazarus before he raised him from the dead. We need to stop telling jokes about hell. We need to point people to what the Bible says about hell. Maybe you could do that by pointing them to the church's webpage and have them view this sermon either with or without you in the future. We need to risk not being liked in telling people that they're going to hell, but they don't have to. We need to risk being rejected. If there was a bridge across the Niagara River between Canada and the United States, washed out. And no car could drive across the bridge because it was washed out. It was gone. 
And people were coming from the U.S. to go into Canada. People were coming from Canada to go in the U.S. And everybody just stood by and watched the cars, one after the other, go into the gorge and into the Niagara River and the people drown. That would not happen. Because the first person who was aware of the bridge being out would say, Stop! The bridge is out! Stop! And if the car didn't listen, he'd stand in the path. Stop! The bridge is out! My church family, the bridge is out. And the people you love are driving down the highway of their lives. You have to love them enough to say, The bridge is out! They may not have tomorrow. 70 murders in this great country since January the 1st. The bridge is out. The bridge is out. Jesus Christ, with his cross and finished work, makes the bridge for the the wicked, vile rebel like me to get to a holy and pure and righteous God. But we must tell people driving down the, the highways of their lives on the broad way that leads to destruction, that the bridge is out unless Jesus Christ becomes your bridge. C.S. Lewis, would you stand with me? C.S. Lewis had a personal secretary, Mr. Hopper, And C.S. Lewis and his personal secretary were in a cemetery one day, and the secretary came by a tombstone that he found amusing, and he pointed out the tombstone to C.S. Lewis, and the tombstone read, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up, with nowhere to go. Isn't that funny, C.S.? C.S. didn't find it funny. C.S. said, If only that were true. We're going to play some music at this time. We're all going to remain standing. Pastors from our fellowship are going to be available to pray with people. And I want you to be doing business with God. God is doing business with you. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you're not sure that you're saved. If you were to die today, you do not know for certain that you would go to heaven. You have a hope-so salvation, but not a no-so salvation. I'm going to ask you, just to step out of your seat and come forward and pray with one of our pastors. Pastors and their wives are coming forward now. Is that your need? Has the Lord brought you to Calvary Bible Church building this morning to get this settled? Because you may not have tomorrow. You may not have next Saturday. You may not have next month. Has God brought you to this place of decision today? To learn about the great perils of hell, but the great love of Jesus, the great hope of heaven, the great promise of forgiveness. You who know Christ, remain standing and pray for people here who don't. In a crowd this big, there are people here who don't know Christ yet. This is the hour of decision. This is the moment of decision in their lives. Pray that they won't have regrets as they spend eternity in hell, that they didn't respond today. Pray for them. And if you know you need the Savior, I urge you to come forward. This is his invitation. It's not mine. This is Christ's invitation to you. You come forward and you pray with someone. Make sure you know 
make sure you've received the greatest of all gifts possible. Don't wait. Don't delay. people think. Step out and trust Jesus to be your Savior. What a beautiful Savior he is. Those known to be saved, those known to be lost. God would move you off of the one list and onto the other. Won't you respond to him today? Is he speaking in your heart? Is he tapping you on the heart in love? Saying you need the Savior. Maybe it's a little hard to come forward. He's here with waiting arms of love, nail-scarred hands, willing to forgive. There's no sin that he will not forgive. Merciful Savior, you come forward. If you need to make this right with God, please come forward. Pray for any that are finding it too hard to come forward here without the Savior, but not prepared to come forward. I pray you'd save them and transfer their trust to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see the urgency of the hour. I'm going to switch this invitation now from the first invitation of the Lord to a second. If you have been in the lifeboat a long time and you have forgotten how dangerous the seas are and you want to come forward as a Christian now to ask somebody to pray with you to be more zealous and faithful and bold in your witness for Jesus and I invite you to step out from your seats and have a time of prayer Christians now who need and want to be prayed for to be more bold in their witness for Jesus you step out now time of you making a decision in the privacy of your heart that is observed publicly that could be a, a milestone, a marker in your Christian life, that going from this point forward, you're going to be a lot more intentional about sharing your faith. This series on evangelism is coming to an end, but our work of evangelism never ends until we see Jesus. By stepping out now, Christian, you're saying, I want someone to pray with me and to hold me accountable in a loving way to give share my faith. to come forward to have someone pray for them about being an evangelist, being a witness for Christ, with that difficult relative, that difficult situation at work, whatever the case might be.
precious in the sight of God when his children respond to his call upon their lives based in his word. And Lord, we know that these who are asking for prayer, you'll bless them and help them to be a consistent witness for you. And we pray that any others you would have to nudge forward would do so now. someone to pray with you saying I need I need God's help to be a witness I need God's love God's leading and words if you'd like someone to pray with you about those things please step forward now and someone will pray with you gladly souls is wise the scriptures say the only thing we really can take to heaven with us is the persons we have some measure in leading to Christ everything else is left behind he who wins souls she who wins souls is wise 